this morning. <laughs> Got the hiccups going over there. <clears throat> That's funny. Okay, so last week in Hosea chapter 5, we talked about, we, we look at the strong words that the Lord had for the leaders of Israel, primarily the kings and the priests. Um, but we also saw, and we're going to continue in this theme this morning, how the people were held to account for their, their failure, um, for their willingness to submit to sinful governance, their willingness to submit uh, to idolatry. Um, ultimately, they were preyed upon. They were made merchandise of the people that are taking advantage of the God-given conscience that we all have. Their desire to be in a right relationship with God and God having put the knowledge and the understanding of what is right and wrong, good and evil within them. We read about that in uh, the book of Romans in the first two chapters. And they were being taken advantage of and presented with alternative methods, which were no alternative at all. But they willingly submitted to it. They knew better. They chose it. We also taught, as we looked at, nothing prevented, there was nothing there that would prevent personal faith. We understand that what's being discussed here in Israel is general terms, that there obviously were those who were faithful. We have at least Hosea and Amos, but there were those who faith, and so nothing would negate or prevent them from coming to faith as a part of this. Nor would there be anything preventing anyone from repenting from turning from their idolatry and turning to a right relationship and walking with the Lord in obedience. But what is off the table is the national sparing of consequence. God has already removed that. The certainty of that fact is here, and we look at that this morning. And as we said, the certainty of judgment, the certainty of consequence, comes with the promise and the certainty of restoration. We want to conclude with that understanding this morning. We did a little bit last week, and we're going to look at it further. So let's begin this morning in verse 7, sort of a summary statement of everything up to this point. It says, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. Now, it's talking about a month. It's not a time frame. It isn't that Assyria is coming in as God's agent of judgment. Within a month, month simply means, and it's probably better translated, in a short period of time. That's all it means. And their portions are their inheritance, the lands that those tribes would have inherited. They're going to lose that. They're going to be divested of it as they go into bondage in another country. It says here that they have dealt treacherously against the Lord. Ultimately, that word treacherously means that they were un they're unfaithful or they're deceitful. While they are God's people, but they're God's people in name only, the summary accusation against the nation of Israel is that while they may say that they know him, their heart is far from him. And while they may make some small attempt to be viewed as God's people, they're unfaithful pretenders. That's where they're at. Now, we understand that this is God's example, people, and we would expect that we would encounter some of this today. 
that there are those within the church that are unfaithful pretenders. That they want to be understood and looked at and viewed as one of God's people, but in fact, their heart is far from him. The example that God uses here to illustrate and highlight the separation of heart is that of strange children. He says that they have raised, they've begotten strange children. Uh, their rearing of their children, which would ultimately, by God's prescription and command, would be that which would lead to and contribute to the continuation of the, of the relationship of the nation of Israel and the Lord has been put off. It's, it's off their radar. They're raising kids that don't know God, that are strangers to him. Now turn with me to Nehemiah for a moment. Let's look at Nehemiah. Now, a lot has happened historically between Hosea and the book of Nehemiah. We've had not only uh, the, the kingdom of Israel going into bondage, but we've also had the kingdom of Judah going into bondage, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, and, and ultimately them coming back to uh, the promised land to rebuild the walls. There's, there's history, and just remember that the, the Bible and what we find in the Old Testament isn't chronological in its organization. And so just because we read Hosea after uh, the, the minor prophets are found after the book of Nehemiah does not mean that that is a chronological order that they are to be, to be understood in. So that's what's happened. And as we come to, at some point, I'm going to find Nehemiah. And I will turn there. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I keep going and I keep going. And there it is. There it is, Nehemiah 13. So Nehemiah has come into, come back to the land. They, they've, in the book of Ezra, they've restored the temple. And now Nehemiah has come and they've restored, they've begun to restore the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the breaches within the walls, to clean up the city and its streets and all of those things. To Ultimately, there's a big discussion about purification of the people. And we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23, page 781 if you have a Bible that's just like mine. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod of Ammon and Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. So a lot of water has gone under the bridge. And we understand through our study of the word of God and the, the origination of the Samaritans that the nation of Israel ended up being mingled with the Syrians. That that was part of the Assyrian uh, occupation of the land, as it were. But in addition to that, Judah had fallen off as well. Anyone who stayed behind because they had so little national identity there in the promised land began to intermarry with those people that God had specifically commanded them not to. And what do we find? We find children here being discussed in the book of Nehemiah that didn't know God. In fact, their language was corrupted. They spoke uh, sort of a broken Hebrew that would be mixed with these other la national languages. And in the end, that's a concern and a problem. They're raising children that don't know God. In the book of Genesis, you'll turn there. I know where that one's at. It's at the very beginning. Usually I don't have trouble finding Genesis. Genesis chapter 18 
we look at Abraham and we look at his calling out of Ur of the Chaldee, right? Here he is, God's specific guy, and he called him. And one of the things that is specifically stated about Abraham, we find here in regard to the rearing of his children. He says in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verses 17 through 19, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? Now, this is in uh, the, where they're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. God has sent angels that, that are going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, will I withhold this information from Abraham? From the guy that I've promised all of this land to, uh, we understand and we know from our study of scripture that here is Lot, Abraham's uh, relation, I can't remember, nephew, uh, that he's living there. He's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where we find him. And God says this of Abraham, should I hide this from him? And the Lord said uh, in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. I mean, he's promised in them. This is part of what God has promised. He will, because I've declared it to be so, and all the nations of the earth shall call him blessed. Should I withhold this information from him, knowing that this is going to be the case? In other words, would the heritage of Abraham know the works of God? And he says, for I know him. This is God's commentary on Abraham. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham, he has spoken of him. God says, listen, I know that Abraham is going to raise his children to know the things of God. Is this something that I want his children to be aware of and to know about? And ultimately, we know that that is the case, that he did. And that's the discussion that's had. We, why? Because we find it here recorded in his word. Now, I may be ascribing motives to God that are not, in fact, his motives. I don't know his heart in all this. But what he's saying is simply, I know that Abraham is going to teach his children to know me, that he will be faithful in that task, so that this generational promise that I have promised to make him a father of many nations, that I promised to multiply his seed like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the, of the seashore, that that will be the heritage that he can leave them is their relationship with me, that they will be my people and I will be their God. Now, God doesn't withhold this information. He clearly puts it out here, and I'm convinced that he clearly puts it out there because it's part of his faithfulness, and it's part of his uh, conveying his disdain and the effects of sin in this life, in this world. And I say that based upon whenever we encounter Sodom and Gomorrah after its destruction as an illustration of God's dealing with the corruption resultant from sin. He's given us that as an example. We also find that God commanded the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to teach their children, specifically for the intent that they may know him, his works, and his faithfulness. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 6. I know that this is familiar to most all of us, but I want to look at this, and we're not going to examine the entire chapter, though I did put here all of it, because all of it comes to bear. There is a very specific section that is usually pulled out in this context, but, but when we remove it from that context, we do a disservice to the understanding of that. He says this, Beginning in verse 1, now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you 
that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it, that thou might fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. So God says, I'm going to give this law, I'm going to give this set of commands, and this is what you should teach your children. Why? So that there is generational faithfulness, so that your sons and your son's sons going forward in perpetuity will know me and how to walk in obedience to me. And it begins with this, hear, O Israel, uh, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee. In verse 4, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Statement of fact that God himself is the creator of all things, therefore sovereign and alone to be worshipped. That alone he has the jurisdiction to decree what is right and wrong, what is proper and correct, and what is not. That he is within his full power and jurisdiction and right to command that this is how we ought to live. And he goes on to talk to uh, the parents, and he says, listen, this is what I want you to do. You teach your kids when you're sitting down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you're laying them down for bed. We talk about the things of the Lord all the time. We instruct them in the ways of the Lord so that they may not be these strange children that don't know the Lord, but that they may be completely familiar with who he is and all that he's done. As we get further down in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we encounter the reason why verse 20 and when thy son asked thee in the time to come saying what mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the lord our god has commanded you what are these things all about then thou shalt say when we were pharaoh's bondmen in egypt the lord brought us up out of the house of egypt with a mighty hand and the lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon egypt upon pharaoh and upon all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it. God says, listen, I'm going to tell you this, and, and this is part, you train your kids in all these things so that when they have the question, you can have the witness and the testimony of my faithfulness. That that would be a motivating factor in the decisions that they make. That God is in fact faithful, that he is uh, completely worthy of our fealty. And that we would serve him, that, that we would find the chief end of man to be to honor God, to know him. And the, the chief privilege we might enjoy is relationship and fellowship with him. The nation of Israel, or the kingdom of Israel, is here raising kids that are far from him. And it's an expose of their heart. If they really were God's people, if they loved the Lord, then they would be raising their children to love the Lord as well. Yet God's commentary, what he accuses them of, what he summarizes, and the example that he uses is that their kids don't know me, therefore they don't know me. The summary of the issue. Now, I want to 
just take just a brief moment here and mention the, uh, a map, right? So we have Benjamin. I kind of put a crude pink circle around it. And you can kind of see, but you kind of can't see. You have Mizpah and you have Gibeon and you have, uh, well, those two in particular. They're in the tribe of Benjamin. And you also see that they are uh, by far the closest tribe, closest territory neighboring Ephraim. Right? And we understand that Ephraim is where the tribe from which Jeroboam the first was from. Then when we read about Ephraim throughout the rest of the book of Hosea, that's, a, that's an understanding that is a reference to the kingdom of Israel, those 10 tribes. But we have Benjamin and we have Judah. Those are the two tribes that did not side with Jeroboam. They formed the kingdom of Judah. Okay, so this is a geographic relationship between that, and that gives us context for the next verse. He says in verse 8, Blow ye the cornet, or the trumpet, the horn in Gibeah, and the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Beth Haven after thee, O Benjamin. So he declares Gibeah, Ramah, Beth Haven, these towns that are very near the border of Ephraim, within Benjamin, they would be the first to receive the news of the destruction and the fall of the kingdom of Israel. And he says, Benjamin, your job is to be those that would declare, that would cry aloud what is coming. They would announce the judgment that had come to Israel and ultimately that was on its way to the kingdom of Judah because we find that Judah is here confronted with some sinfulness of their own. It's not to be a quiet event. This is a proclamation that is being declared, something that is shouted from the housetops, as it were. This is world-changing news as far as they're concerned. It was designed, and the reason that it needed to be proclaimed, because it has a corrective and a preservative effect upon the kingdom of Judah. Turn with me to Amos, the book of Amos. Chapter 3, now we'll remember that Amos and Hosea are contemporary prophets. They're both prophets to the kingdom of Israel. Amos chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. There's a proclamation of what is coming. There's a proclamation of the destruction and the overrunning by the enemies of God at his sovereign decree, by his corrective hand of the nation of Israel, of the kingdom of Israel. In chapter 7 of, the, of Amos, Amos chapter 7, verse 9, And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And if we jump over to verse 17 in the same chapter, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, thy wife shall be in harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, 
and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of this land. God has clearly made known what is happening, and this is what he is uh, telling you and I. If we read verse 9 in Hosea chapter 5, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. God hasn't withheld this. God, in his mercy toward Israel for generations, has been proclaiming the need for repentance, the need to turn back to him and to abandon their idolatry. And when they forsake that, when they don't listen, God says, this is what is going to happen. And he gives Benjamin the task of being the proclaimer of when this does happen, when, it, when Assyria shows up, when they begin to destroy the altars, when they begin to take them into captivity and export them from the land into their own land, Benjamin proclaim it because it is a preservative and a corrective proclamation to the kingdom of Judah. We, as the church, are called to be a corrective and a preservative force within the world. Just as Benjamin was called to proclaim the judgment was coming, this is what it is. And when we don't heed the word of the Lord to repent, to turn to him, there is judgment imminent. That's the same message that we have today. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 1, if I was on a desert island and I could only take one book of the entire Bible with me, it would probably be the book of Hebrews. In my opinion, it is the clearest Old Testament, New Testament, everything symbolized, everything explained, declaration of the gospel in Scripture. That's my opinion. Somebody else might choose to take the book of Romans, which is also a powerful book. But I think Hebrews checks the boxes for me. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through, two, 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, whom he has appointed, excuse me, verse 2, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So on and so forth. How did God notify the nation of Israel that there was a coming judgment? Well, God, who in diverse and sundry times, in a diverse manner, spoke unto us by his prophets. He would send godly man that he called specifically to be his mouthpiece of what was about to come. Hosea being one of them. Amos being another. Isaiah. Elijah. Elisha. But both, all, all of these men called by God to be prophets. Those who would declare what is coming. But how does he speak to you and I today? It says that in these last days... He's spoken unto us by his son. He's spoken to us by Jesus Christ. Now, there's two things that I want to make that I want to make understood here. Number one, Jesus Christ is the completion of the law. And we, we studied that in Sunday school not that long ago. We looked at all these pictures and illustrations that we find in the Old Testament 
that Jesus completely fulfilled, and it gives us some context and, and some clarity of understanding about what he has done, about the labors and the pains that God went to to clearly articulate and illustrate our desperate need for what he was going to provide in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want you to understand that the word of God itself in John chapter 1 makes no muddy declaration, but clearly and boldly states that Jesus Christ was in fact the word. And when God speaks to us by his son, not only is it all the things that Jesus taught and are recorded in the word, it is in fact the word itself. The revelation of God found in Scripture and in Scripture alone, coupled with what Jesus taught, with what he said, coupled with who he was, is how God speaks to us today. We have the Word of God as an instrument in our toolbox. In the book of Hebrews, it would tell us that the sword, the word of God, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In other words, when we look into it, our true nature is revealed, and we have to deal with that. We're called to be a preservative force here in the world as believers. We're going to get to that here in just a moment. We need to understand that the way that God is going to speak to the world through us is through our proclamation of his word, just as it was with the prophets, the proclamation of his word. When God closed his revelation at the end of the book of Revelation, said, don't add to it, don't take to it, this is finished, this is complete. We understand that to be a literal fulfillment and completion of his word. That here it is. You and I may have the opportunity and we may talk about and discuss the gift of, this, of the Spirit, as it's called, in, in being a prophet. That's simply the declaration of God's Word. It's not a new revelatory process as we found in the Old Testament. It's a proclamation of, of what God has said. And so in some respects, each one of you, to greater or lesser degree, as the Spirit chooses to manifest itself, as we read, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we may God may manifest by the Spirit in us some prophetic utterance, some utterance of His Word. There's a reason that we want to memorize Scripture. Part of the reason we want to memorize Scripture is so that it is there, it is within us, it is a useful tool. We don't have to carry it on our belt. We don't have to pack it in the back of the car so that when you're in a car accident and it slides forward, it hits you in the back of the head. It's not doing anybody any good there. But when it's in the heart and the spirit can draw it out as necessary and now it can be used as the proclamation of truth and righteousness and of judgment by the spirit itself through our mouth, it's very powerful. God speaks to the world today by his son, by the word of God. In John chapter 16, John chapter 16, and it's important for us to note that the declaration, the proclamation that is being made is singular. 
John 16, verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not in you at the beginning because I was with you. So here is Jesus and he says, listen, there is a proclamation that you need to be making. We're going to see that commission here in just a moment. He's command to you and I. But God tells us that we are to proclaim with using the word of God. Not only that, that as, a procl- as, as, our, as we do so, as we stand and as we are his witnesses, which he commands us to be, that we will most assuredly face persecution. That there will be those who even in the name of serving God will put us out of the synagogues, will seek to put us to death. Right? That was Saul's experience. Here he is, zealous to be about God's business, persecuting the very church that Jesus, that God himself had established. And ultimately having to be confronted with truth, ultimately being called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, penning scripture. We need to be fully prepared. And Jesus said, I'm telling you this so that when it does happen, you're not surprised. You don't fall away. When we begin to proclaim the word of God, when we stand upon truth, when we do so boldly and unashamedly, we are going to face pushback. We might even face hardship. It's not a problem. In Acts chapter 1, We could have gone to nearly any of the Gospels, and we could have found the same declaration, the same commission from Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. Witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. We declare those things. We begin in those near regions, whether it's in our families, by raising our children to know the Lord, whether it's in our, in our extended families, by the example and the clear proclamation of the word. But an ever-growing sphere of influence as God calls us to it. This is a great commission. This is part of the general task that every believer would have, that we would make God known, that we would make Jesus Christ known as the only substitute, as the way the truth, and the life. This is the purpose of the believer as we find in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. He says this, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus just told us that the purpose, one of the purposes that God would save you and I for is to make him known. That we would be the candle that he would place on a candlestick, that we would fulfill the purposes that he has for us. 
Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, created unto good works, is before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, I'm not, not going to say that there are people in this world that only you would reach, because that would be contrary to God's desire that anyone would be saved. But there are those that God has clearly set out for you to be the first stab, as it were. That you are the chief witness in those regions, in that Judea, in that Samaria, in that corner of the world. That is the purpose of which God would save us, to make him known in word and in deed. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And the question that, that I want to pose to you this morning that I posed over here uh, in the bulletin is simply this. Are we ashamed or are we those who would from the rooftops like Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was commanded, blow the horns, make a big show, make it known with clarity and intent that Jesus Christ is in fact the savior of the world. And that apart from Jesus Christ, we are stuck and found in our natural estate with the predetermined destiny of hell. That's all we, all we can hope for. It's singular. It's clear. It's simple. In practice, sometimes we shrink back. I know because I've been there. I know because there have been the times when I knew that I should have said something, that I knew that I should have been a, a bit more bold, and I chose not to. I chose to try to hide under the bushel, even though God had clearly put me on the candlestick. And the exhortation for you and I would be Benjamin, would, would be to be like Benjamin. Proclaim, this is what God has done. Proclaim that judgment is imminent. In verse 10 of Hosea chapter 5, it says the princes of Judah. Now, this is, this is a condemnation of those who are ruling in Judah. This is the prophet Hosea dealing with something. God using him to deal with something that is going on in the neighboring kingdom. The princes of Judah are like them that remove the bound. Therefore, I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Judah couldn't wait to move into the territory that was occupied by the other 10 tribes. That's what's being said here. They see what they're doing. They see the idolatry. They hear the prophets speaking about the, 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 the condemnation that Israel has now fallen under and that the judgment is coming, and they can't wait for it to happen because they want to swoop in and take that territory. They're like those that move the bounds. It turns me to Deuteronomy chapter 19 for a moment. We'll get some context and understanding about what that means. In a past, past life, I was, was a surveyor. These are some of my favorite verses because this was bread and butter. Deuteronomy 19 verse 14 says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God gives thee to possess it. In other words, we go out and 
Not when we when we get to the end of the book of Joshua, we find the land being distributed that each tribe received their territory. I put that map up earlier, and everyone got their specific inheritance. Not only that, but within those tribes, each family got their specific inheritance. They received something. This is the generational land. This is this is it. And so they would mark it. They would put the landmarks out. This is my side. That's your side. And God prohibits and codifies within his own law the movement of those boundaries. Right? If I just slide this over, you know, couple of feet every year. Nobody's ever going to notice, but by the time my son possesses this land, well, he'll have a lot bigger parcel than he currently has. It's theft. Deuteronomy 27, 17 basically says the same thing. And here we have Judah being condemned because what do they say? We want to move in and inherit the land that is not ours to inherit. We want to move the bounds as it were, of our kingdom, our tribes, into the tribes, those other ten tribes. We want to take Ephraim. We want to take Dan and Reuben and Gad. We want to take those other tribes' inheritance. Now, God has enshrined in his own law this idea that that land is theirs in perpetuity. We may not deal this way in, in Western culture, but in Jewish culture in this time, God said, listen, you only get to possess that in that land for a period of seven years, and then you have to give it back. You can only effectively lease it. You can sell it within the family, but you can't sell it outside of the family. And land was valued in its relation to the year of Jubilee when those things had to be given up. If I was going to buy this land and I was only going to be able to farm it for a year, I don't have to pay as much as if I get to use it for seven years. But here is Judah chomping at the bit, just waiting to make prey of those weaker brothers in Israel to reap whatever benefit they may as a result. We need to watch out because there is a parallel here within the church that we have to be careful of. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 19. Now, it may not be that we're physically taking land from anybody or that we're chomping at the bit, as it were, to possess something that somebody else owns. Uh, listen, there's not 19 chapters in 1 Corinthians. Just so you know, maybe it's chapter 9. Let me see real quick. I don't think it's 2 Corinthians either. Hold on a second. This is an important one. Chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. As I said, we may not be looking to take somebody's property, but we may be making prey of them in regard to their reputation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, 
and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did eat all the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Now just pause there for a moment. God is telling us that all those things that happened in the Old Testament, that Israel, as they wandered in the wilderness, were his example people to you and I. That there were those that he was clearly providing for, those who were there, yet they were weak in the faith, as it were. They were still his people, but there was a struggle there. God was not well pleased with them, and so his corrective hand fell on them. But they drank the same spiritual drink, which was Christ. I think there's a clear connotation here that they are God's people. So let's continue on. Verse 8. Uh, excuse me, verse 7, neither be you idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and 20,000. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. I see he goes on and he tells, listen here, church, Church of God, now in the New Testament, paralleled with the people of God, the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness, be watchful, they were not falling into some of the same traps. But he continues on, verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for examples and samples that are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above all that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. There are going to be those that are going to fall within the church that are going to struggle in sin. We talked about this last week, that the struggle with sin for the believer is real and legitimate. And that will happen. As we look at Judah in respect to their, their interaction with the kingdom of Israel, we see this waiting with bated breath that they might take prey and profit by the fall of those who are weak in the faith. And here we have this admonition in 1 Corinthians that we would pay attention to those who have gone before, watch out for their example, because God has recorded it for us that we might not fall into the same temptation. What do we read about Judah? Where did they end up in bondage just a few hundred years from now? Where did they fall into idolatry? They took advantage at those who were weak in the faith. Now, we as a church, the, the, the body of Christ, we may not be coveting their land, as it were, but we may be coveting some other thing. Well, their position, we see Ananias and Sapphira who sold their property, and they were seeing all this uh, celebration because people were selling property and bringing it in, and they were giving it to the church for distribution. They wanted that recognition, and so what did they do? They sold it, but they conspired together. They said, we're only going to give half of it, but we'll tell everybody we gave all of it. 
It was theirs to do whatever they wanted with. They were entrusted with stewardship of that land. They could have simply given half of it and it would have been fine. It would have been celebrated. But they wanted the prestige. They wanted the name. They wanted the recognition. They coveted something that others would have been celebrated for. And so what happens? We come to Bible study. Did you hear about so-and-so? We really should pray for such and such because this is what's happening. And we pray upon the failure, the, the reality of the struggle of sin that is common to us. There's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. Why? Because our sinful nature wants to be look, looked at better than that person over there. We're just like the Pharisee that says, I'm thankful that I'm not like that publican over there. This is what's happening between Judah and Israel, and this happens within the church. We prey upon the hardship of others. The, what we should do, what we should find ourselves doing is what we read in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, in the first verse, God tells us how the body ought to respond to failure within the body. Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, if you're stuck in sin, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Restore such a one. What should Judah have been doing? They should have been sending missionaries over to the kingdom of Israel saying, listen, God has proclaimed judgment. You need to repent. When we find those, rather than we're going to pray for them, we're going to spread the gossip, we're going to somehow elevate ourselves and pray upon their struggle with sin that is just the same as my struggle with sin, though it may look slightly different. We take what Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, and we throw it out. Because I'm not concerned about what the rest of the body is going to suffer or what is going to happen here or what may, who may be stumbled within the church or the Bible study that I am now engaged in. Now, I'm only really concerned about getting this information now because it somehow satisfies the lust of my flesh. Whose glory am I concerned with? And why would we not see any part of the body which God tells us in his word is equally important and valid and absolutely necessary to the proper functioning of the body. Why would we not see any part of the body in trouble and move to help as God has commanded us? It may not perhaps be a problem within our church, but it's a problem in the body of Christ. It's a problem and it causes division and it causes a lack of witness. It destroys the witness of the church to the, to the world. Because we look exactly the same as they do. What happens? The guys at work, right? You, everybody, you know, I saw so-and-so really slacking the other day, and they're quick to let everybody know. It's exactly the same thing, exactly the same heart. Well, I was slacking there with him, but I want to be, I want to look good the same heart we look just like the world only we're usually talking about things that are far more serious that have some lasting or maybe some eternal effect on families 
or individuals or other things, other churches. He says in verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because it willingly walked after the commandment. It willingly walked after the commandment. Now, when we talk about the commandment here, we're not talking about the commandments of God. That was not what Ephraim was willingly pursuing. I said that God was speaking harshly to the leaders of Israel, but that he also called the people to account. And this is where he does that. Because the individuals were willingly submitting themselves to this. They were running to this idolatry, and they were participating in knowing better. You have to remember that upon its founding, especially early on, right, those were the people, they were at that point still worshiping at the temple. It was with well within reason that they may have been in attendance where the glory of God literally descended from heaven and occupied the temple. They may have witnessed it and chose to go after false gods. They willingly did it. They chose to do it. And it's really because of the natural predilection, the predisposition that we may hold to sinfulness, that we would willingly seek idols. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we've been here before, but this is where uh, Jeroboam says, this is how we're going to keep power. We're not going to allow them to worship the true God anymore. We're going to codify and nationalize idolatry. We're going to set up these two cabs, one over here in Bethel, one over here in Dan, and that's where we'll worship. Because if they keep going down to Jerusalem, and worshiping the true and living God, if they keep hearing truth, they're going to fall away from our rule, from from us. Our kingdom will be lost. It sounds like a familiar attack because we live in times where if we listen to truth, all of a sudden, those who may be in leadership may no longer be in leadership. They willingly sought idols. The church, in many respects, has largely followed the same model. And I know that's a a bold statement, and I realize that's a broad brush. But it begins with the individual, right? We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked about governance, and it begins with self-government. There's a failure of self-government here, but the body of Christ has willingly abdicated, has willingly given up that ground in response to the backlash that we may feel from society. They've allowed God to be displaced, and we've adopted the idol of popular opinion. We've talked about this before. But there it is. We have to watch. We have to stand fast. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, there are 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. I know because I checked earlier. First Corinthians 16, verse 13. He says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men. Watch you, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men. That means to conduct yourselves like men. 
here we are. And it begins by not watching what's going on around us. And it begins by not paying attention to the attacks that are coming and the attacks that, are, that, that we may face. And then secondly, when we don't stand firm, when we step away or we shy away or somehow we soften to the extent that, that, that we, we, we don't want to offend or we don't want to cause concern or somehow turn them off to the gospel, as it were. We're not called to that. We're called to a clear preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unwavering. We're called to stand firm and declare clearly the principles of God as expounded in his word. And we're told, as we read earlier in John chapter 16, we're not going to be popular for it. In Galatians chapter 5, turn there with me, Galatians 5. In verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, here's what's going on. This is a discussion about legalism within the church. And there's a whole other kind of legalism that is currently creeping into the church but it has nothing to do with the word of God or the principles laid out therein. It has everything to do with the false God that has come in, the idol of popular opinion. We call it, you find it called social justice. It's called woke. It's all those things, but it's anything and everything that is declaring what is right and wrong other than the God of the Bible who has the only authority to do so. And it's the church's willingness to adopt and to hold on to those things in the name of love and getting along and not causing offense and not turning people off to the gospel that is muddying the water about what the gospel is. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. He didn't put you back in a yoke of bondage where you have to now somehow obey all these things and say the right things and not say the wrong things and know what everybody's gender is today, tomorrow, in the next five seconds so that we don't cause an offense. He says, stand upon truth, stand fast in the faith, in the liberty that Christ has made us free in. Watching a video and it's, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bumble the quote. I'm going to do my best. It says that if anything, if the laws are created by immoral and unjust people, then the laws themselves will be immoral and unjust. And they'll be changing regularly. And that's what we encounter today. When we as a church will bow down to the popular opinion, to whatever society says, when we yield to that idol, it's a moving target. Yet when we stand fast in the liberty, the freedom that God has given us in Christ, that we are declared righteous, that that is, that is the only way that anyone is declared righteous, and that it only is rooted in truth. It never changes. It is unwavering. One more here, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. 
verse 27 through 29. Only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ. The way we conduct ourselves, what we say, how we say it, and what we do should be a reflection and a clear and accurate representation of the gospel of Jesus. And ultimately, we have this clear statement that that's going to be contrary to what the world would aspire to. But did you also notice that it said that we need to stand together? in one mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I realize, and I'm fully cognizant and, and quick to point out that there are churches that we may not enjoy fellowship with because there is a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference in the gospel that is believed. But you know, there are plenty of believers and there are plenty of churches where we would have a lot of unity, where we would get together and we could stand with, united to present the gospel in a more consistent and in a broader venue. There's one body. One body. We are to stand together. We are not to willingly yield to the idol that is currently creeping into the church. There is an admonition in the book of Hosea to turn to God. He says in verse 13, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and to the king Jerob, yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. As we stand firm in truth, we must restore. Here's Ephraim. They turned to other nations. It says that they turned to Assyria. They went to Assyria and they turned to King Jerob. We're going to come back to that King Jerob here in just a moment. But they didn't turn to God. They didn't turn to the one who could remove his corrective hand from them. They turned to other places. And so, too, the church tries to turn to those other things other than turning to God. We abdicate truth in preference of what is societally acceptable. And what happens? We fall. What we have to understand is this. So the word Jerob, there was not a king in Assyria named Jerob. This is, a, this is a metaphor. This is something that God is using to illustrate a point. Jerob means contender, somebody that would stand in the gap for you. We would call that in Christian circles, in New Testament context, a mediator. You went to Assyria to try and mediate between you and whoever you perceived to be the one that was oppressing you. 
When in reality, you needed to turn to God, you needed to repent from your idolatry and turn to the true and living God who was in fact correcting you. And you have no excuse. You should have known because he told you over and over and over. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28, turn there with me for just a moment. He talks here not only about Israel, but he talks about Judah. And I want to look at both of these briefly. 2 Chronicles 28. Verses 19 and 20. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. And Tilgath-Pilnezer, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. So we have Judah being affected by the sin of Israel. We have ultimately Israel falling at the king of, to, the, to the king of Assyria, and, and not only him, but, but Judah. He tries to make these alliances, but he's not strengthened by them. Now, he doesn't fall. Judah remains a kingdom for another couple hundred years, but they're weakened by it. In 2 Kings chapter 16, 2 Kings 16, verses 1 through 9, In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the, king, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign and see, reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like David his father. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, yea, and made his son to pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. I want to pause here for a moment. I want you to make this application, right? That here is the king of Judah. And he sees what's going on in Israel. He sees the the, the idolatry. He sees the forsaking of the Lord. And he chooses to walk in that. We talked in the past about the slippery slope of idolatry. This is a manifestation of that. That it is so far pervaded in the kingdom of Israel that it is now spilling over into Judah, so much so that the king has adopted the same principles. How does that parallel today? Right? We have Christianity within Western society that says this is where we need to go rather than standing upon the word of God. That is the minority view, that is the minority practice. And what happens? You have churches that are sliding into that, that are just like King Pekah, the son of Ramalia, falling into idolatry, yielding and being molded into the image of what society says the church should be, rather than standing firm and being those stalwart gatekeepers of truth. We have an opportunity to stand on truth. We have an opportunity to be those that would say the gates of hell are not going to prevail. They're closed in defense. And we're going to take every weapon that is given us by God himself, and we're going to raid those gates. He goes on, and Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. And at that time, king of Syria recovered Elath, the Syrian drove the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath and dwelled there unto this day. 
So Ahaz sent messengers to Kilgath, Pleasure, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. He's literally giving offerings now to his enemy as a result of his failure to see God, of his failure to stand firm. You remember when we talked about these modern idols, we talked about the cost of engaging in that idolatry, what we have to give up, what offering is required. An offering is required to remain in confederacy with the enemies of God. An offering is required of you and I, of the church. What are we going to give up? What are we going to have to sacrifice to yield to the idol of society or popular opinion or whatever it may be? First and foremost, on that altar will be truth. First and foremost. We need to be unwilling to make that offering. We need to be unwilling. We need to be those who would stand fast. <clears throat> Verse 14, it says, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue me. There is no other means of salvation. There is no other name under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. It is only in Jesus Christ. Truth is truth, and he has expounded it to us and preserved it in his word. There's no other mediator between God and man besides the man Christ Jesus. What God calls sin is sin. What God calls righteous is righteous. And it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about it or how we feel about it or how it might make someone else feel. We have to remain firm. We need to be those who are willing to restore, who are willing to share the truth and bring people back. Now, there's this promise of restoration, and I want to talk about this. I want to conclude with this this morning. The promise of restoration. In the context of the church, in the context of you and I personally, we may wander. We may distance ourselves from the Lord, but if we turn back to him, he is there. He's there. Our unfaithfulness does not equal his unfaithfulness. So as we look at the problems that we, that we encounter within the church, as we look at those, we have to be those who would be willing to restore such a one we see the church falling and we see the church succumbing and, and willingly offering sacrifices to maintain the idol that they may be holding on to and our responsibility as believers before the lord is to restore such a one 
considering ourselves so that we don't fall into the same temptation, considering ourselves that we don't fall or yield to legalism or some other ungodly practice. But being those messengers of restoration. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. As we turn there, the clear revelation of God to his people, not only Israel, but to the church, is that he will restore them when they repent, that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that he will readily forgive when we turn our heart to him. Now, we're not talking about salvation. We, we covered that last week. We're, we're simply clarifying God's dealing with his people. He will cleanse them from their unrighteousness. And the same remains true for the church and even with even more certainty than the nation of Israel had. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, will I remember. And I will remember the land. God tells the nation of Israel, says, listen, you, when, when you forget me, when you rebel against me, and we read this earlier in this chapter, when you leave me behind and yield yourself willingly to these idols, there'll be a consequence. I'm going to send other nations. You're going to go into captivity in those other nations. But he says, and there's this promise of restoration. When there's a promise of judgment, there's a promise of restoration. This is God's corrective hand, not his forsaking hand. Because God doesn't forsake us. He says, when they repent, when they turn their heart back to me, I will restore them. I will turn back to them. In Proverbs chapter 8, turn there with me for a moment. Proverbs chapter 8, as we turn there, we need to remember that it's important that we understand this principle of, of restoration. We understand this principle of restoration because we are going to fail. As we talked about the, the struggle and the reality of our sinfulness is there. And all too often what happens is that when we begin to succumb to our sin nature and we begin to yield to it and we fail and we become desperate and we despair because somehow I have removed my favor with God through my sinfulness. That I am now lost, that I am somehow unredeemable, that I, am so, that, that I could never be restored to relationship with God again. And we despair. And there are those that teach for doctrine, falsely so, that we can in fact lose that. And we need to understand that God has promised that we would never lose it. That he has promised that we would remain in relationship with him. Though we may remove ourselves from him, he doesn't remove himself from us. Romans 8, excuse me, Proverbs 8, verse 17. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. 
It's a statement of fact, and it's a statement of promise. Not only a promise that we will find him, but a promise that he is findable. And I make that distinction simply because there are those that would say, God has somehow removed himself from me. He has left me behind. In Hebrews chapter 4, we find that idea clearly refuted by the words of God himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. In the verses preceding this passage, it talks about God's seeing everything that we've ever done. That there is no sin, that there is nothing, that we are laid naked before him with whom we have to do. So that, that's where it's at. Right? That we stand here with the full assurance that God already knows, that God knows exactly where we're at, that he knew not only that we did it, but that we were going to do it long before we ever did it. And then he continues on. He says, seeing then that we have a high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, I want to just pause there for a moment. Israel went to Jerob. They went to some other mediator, something in between. They sought some other mediator. Our only priest, the only mediator that we may experience relationship with God through is Jesus Christ. And the Bible makes that clear. There's no other mediator between God and man, but the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man may come to the Father but by me. And here again, seeing that we have a great high priest, that we have this mediator that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our perfection. Let us stand firm in all that, that we have professed in our faith. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. We have the assurance that Jesus Christ, though he, even though he's our mediator, knows exactly what we're going through. That he understands and empathizes with our struggle with, the corrupt, with our corrupt nature. Though he himself never sinned, he struggled with it. He, that's a terrible way to say that. He understands. Let us, therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Knowing that he knows everything, knowing that he's forgiven everything, knowing that Jesus Christ himself has made a way, that he fully understands, let us come boldly boldly therefore to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need the promise of restoration to you and i is such that we have access directly into the presence of god through jesus christ and what he's done and all that's required of you and i is to simply turn from where we're at and run boldly into his presence not bringing any additional offering, not bringing anything, anything above and beyond what Jesus has already and fully provided. In other words, we are in relationship with God, and that does not change. We may have walked out of his presence. We may have left the place where his glory dwells. We may have walked away from the throne of grace. 
But at any moment, we can turn around and walk right back into it. And at the instant that we do, the door is open for us. At the instant, instant that we do, we receive all the grace that is necessary. We will receive mercy. Nothing's changed. So for you and I, as those who are going to be those proclaimers of truth, for you and I, first of all, we need to understand that this is our relationship, that this is the nature of the relationship that we have with our Creator through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. That we can't lose it, that we can't shake it, that we can't have some somehow be so far gone that He would reject us and completely throw us out. That at any moment, that, that even when we fail, when we struggle in our sinfulness, when that, when that old man raises his head and we might succumb to it, that at any moment we can readily run into his presence and we can without shame, without any fear of repercussion, as it were, be restored within relationship with him. That though I walked away, he didn't take a single step. But not only that, as those who are going to proclaim that truth, as those who are going to stand firm and now see those things that are out there that need to be restored, we have this sure message of restoration. When we see the church that is out there struggling, that is, that is giving up, the, or, or believers or family that are somehow yielding to these ungodly principles, we have the opportunity to talk with them not only about confrontation with truth as we hold the word of God and say, this is what God says. Your opinion, the opinion, the, the idols that you may be holding have no comparison to this. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. And just know that when you choose to serve God, he doesn't throw you. He didn't throw you out when you chose to serve something else. Not only do we have the message of correction, but we have the message of restoration that we get to share at the same time. In 2 Chronicles, I want to leave you with this example. 2 Chronicles chapter 16. In 2 Chronicles, we encounter a king, one of the kings of Israel. And this king previously in his administration had faced an unbeatable army. And when he first encountered that army, he went to the Lord and he sought God's help. And God delivered them. They had a victory. They were preserved. Now, again, later in his life, later in his administration, faced with the identical circumstance. I am facing an army that I cannot beat. And rather than turn to the Lord, rather than turn to God and seek his help yet again, who has proven himself faithful and will remain faithful, he tends to walk by sight and he says, I'm going to make some allegiances and I'm going to make some ties with other nations and we'll pool our armies and we'll be able to defend my kingdom. And God sends a prophet to this king and he confronts him by this prophet. Verse 7, let's begin in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because I was relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. 
the offering of his idolatry in this particular case was loss. He was going to lose this battle. And he's reminded in verse 8, we're not the Ethiopians in the Lumens, that huge host, it says. That was the army that he defeated in the past, that God moved on his behalf. We're not they with many chariots and horsemen, yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. And this is what he says in verse 9. This is what I want us to remember this morning. This is what I want us to hold on to, because this is where we're at. We're faced, and we have the, we have, it is. It isn't about how persuasive we are or how much knowledge we may have. It isn't about any of those things. It isn't about you and I, period. It's about what the Lord may be doing in and through us and around us and in the life of the person we may be conversing with. It's about our reliance upon him. It's about our service to him for his glory. As we talked about this morning in in respect to labor and God's principles of work and those things, what is the purpose of it? Well, it ultimately isn't for our fulfillment. It is for his glory and for him, so that he might be made known, so that we might see his faithfulness in our lives and in our hearts. So as we face battles that we're going to contend with, whether it's somebody in the grocery store and we're going to share the gospel with them, or some atheist over here who refuses to acknowledge God, or maybe it's confronting somebody about sinfulness in their life and a a battle or a debate ensues over their undesire to adhere to the word of God. It isn't about you or me. It isn't about our talents or our ability to clearly articulate that. Now, we should be ready. Don't, Don't misunderstand. We should be ready to give an answer, to defend the gospel. But this is what it says here in verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Here and thou is done foolishly. Therefore, henceforth thou shalt have wars. Listen, King A said, isn't that it, it isn't about the size of your army. It's about the position of your heart in relation to God. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro about the whole earth. To show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect, whose heart is undivided toward him. It remains true for you and I, just as it remained true for the nation of Israel, that God will restore. He says, I will turn, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me early. God says, I will send them into captivity. I will correct them in my hand because I love them, as we talked about last week, until they turn back to me. And the moment that they turn back to me, I will show myself strong on their behalf. At the moment that they unburden their heart with division, I will move on their behalf. And the same is true for you and I. And as we look back on the word of God, no, no, we have the benefit of the example. Wherefore, lay aside every sin and, the, and the, every weight and the sin that is so easily beset you and run with patience the race that is set before us. 
looking at, uh, unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despised the shame, but he gave himself on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word, Lord, and I praise you that even with the promise of, correct, of your corrective hand, Lord, comes full and sure the promise of your restoration. As we look at Israel and the example and your interaction with them, Lord, that they were corrected because you love them, because they were your people, just as we may receive correction because we are your people. That even in the midst of that correction, Lord, the moment that we turn our heart to you, Lord, you are there to be found. That you never left us, that you never forsook us, you never removed yourself from us, yet remained faithful despite our unfaithfulness. And God, I pray for the church at large. I pray for the body of Christ that, that more and more so would be willing to compromise, would be willing to allow those things in that would displace you, that would take your, your word, your truth, and put it aside for anything else. Lord, I pray for purification of the church, knowing full well, Lord, that that may come with corrective hand. Lord, help us to be beacons of truth. Help us to be those who would be steadfast and remain stalwart in our faith. We praise you and thank you, Lord, and we ask for your grace that we may be so. For your honor, for your glory, that the world may know you. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.